Good day and welcome to episode 24 of Blowing Cartridges, the gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host Zach Clark. So Zach, it's a special day today because this is an episode that I think is going to be close to both of our hearts. Are you as excited as I am? Yes, I am. You know, it's going to be a very uh, a very hip episode is how I'd uh, assess it, given it's, a, you know, they say it's hip to be to be square, but then you multiply it by three to make it a 3D square or a cube, and there's three people on the podcast, so I don't know, that's weird logic I'm going with as to, to link it back to that uh, that song. <laughs> Wait, only three? I'd, I'd multiply it by six. There's six squares on a cube. Look. Oh, <laughs> we have a guest. Who's this? Who's our guest today, Zach? Uh, yes, well, today we're joined by our good friend from back in the Aussie Nintendo. Another Castle Days, uh, Guggenheimer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That is correct. Welcome. Howdy, howdy. Nice to be here. And thanks for joining us, because we know you're as big of a fan of the cube with a handle as we are, so it's going to be... A lot of fun to dive into everyone's lovable purple lunchbox. Oh boy, can't wait. So I guess thinking back on the GameCube, it's... Well, 20 years ago, it came out in Japan on the 14th of September 2001. We had to wait a bit longer in Australia. It came out about May 2001. I fondly remember going down to Melbourne because at the time I was living in country Victoria, about two and a half hours out of Melbourne. And for whatever reason... My parents said, oh, yeah, we'll get it for you for your birthday that year. Oh, here's the pre-order. Like, we'll get it when it comes out. Like, you have to wait for your birthday present that year. And I was only seven years old, so I remember having to wait three, four months seemed like a lifetime, but I was so excited to get that GameCube. Had a Game Boy Advance at the time. That was my very first console, so was very much into the Nintendo ecosystem at that point. My brother had a 64, got that near launch, so was always very immersed in... Nintendo games, your Mario's, your Zelda's and the like. And so for whatever reason, my parents pre-ordered it at the Toys R Us in Melbourne Central. And I know you're from Melbourne, Zach, so you might remember that the Toys R Us used to be Mm. where the Melbourne Central train station is now, like down in the basement level, down a massive escalator. And I just remember going down there and we went near launch and I got that cube and went home and played, got Rogue Squadron 2, Rogue Leader and Luigi's Mansion 2 with it and just loving every moment of playing both those games particularly Rogue Squadron 2 and it was just I guess love at first sight from a gaming perspective I played that GameCube from well 2002 all the way until well into the Wii generation was always getting pulled out these days it's I'd no longer have it it's with my brother overseas but I still have all my GameCube games I play them on the Wii there's still new experiences I'll go back and play the game on the GameCube games I missed games I always wanted to play but never had the chance to and also games that I hear about from like people like yourself people like Guggenheimer that are that tell me oh you must play this game it's a fantastic game and I just think for how unsuccessful some people say it was and the relatively short lifespan there's so many good games on that system but I won't go on too much on a monologue so I guess <laughs> throwing it to you Zach what, what was your first experience with the GameCube what's your first yeah. memory uh well I think my first memory is like reading about it in probably K-Zone because <laughs> that was my source of news as a kid and getting obviously extremely excited for it. 
I then have very vivid memories of a Smash Brothers Melee demo in a Dick Smith prior to it coming out in May that you could play and playing as Kirby, even though obviously Kirby was on the on the 64 <laughs> version. Because um, I had a sort of similar, I guess, launch experience to an extent, Brendan. I mean, my birthday was a f- you know about a month before the GameCube launch. Um, so similarly, I didn't you know get a present on the day and it was just a pre-order receipt for a GameCube, which was at the time still very exciting. Uh, and I remember maybe a week before the launch was meant to be, mum came and picked me up from school like on a Friday and like, yep, this is normal. And then she's like, oh, look in the back seat. And the, the Dick Smith had broken embargo on the, on the GameCube. So we got it a week before it launched. However, I didn't have any games for it. So I mostly played around with, with this cube menu for like oh a few days uh, until eventually I think Kmart stocked some games. And I got Luigi's Mansion uh, without a memory card because, I, you know, going from the 64, did not know that oh, memory no. cards were a thing. Um, so I had to go back the day or two later and and get a memory card because until then i was just replaying up to uh chauncey the the first boss like over and over again but it was still a very exciting um experience to say the least yeah but what about uh you gookie what what was your sort of launch slash pre-launch experience with the the old purple cube for me that's it's, it's kind of like where it all started or you know, where it all went downhill because uh, i think <laughs> i know must have been the year before or so that was when um when my parents said to me like all right yeah that's it we're not getting you any more games for you know christmas or birthdays if you want them you have to get them yourselves which yeah i'm sure they'll they'll regret those words now <laughs> so yeah uh, i think it was so it was yeah july 2001 we came back from a family holiday to new zealand and you know the, walk past the um airport news agents and at, at the time you know i'll go past the new news agent stop in see what like what magazines are there and what they have in the cheat section because like that's all magazines are good for right definitely then and yeah i saw something different this time there was this this yellow magazine sitting there right in the middle and it had this like ultra detailed picture of mario on the front he had like you, know, you could see like individual stitches in his overalls like oh what's what's, what's this here like what, this I've, I've never seen mario looking like this and yeah that was issue number one well the uh, august issue because of how things were then of um nintendo gamer magazine their big E3 special showing Nintendo's debut of the GameCube and showing everything it was. And I think that was the first time I read like a Nintendo magazine cover to cover and like just took everything into it. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And that, that was where the hype started. Managed to you know, convince my sister to go halves with me on a pre-order for the GameCube. Got with the Toys R Us deal, I think from memory, it was $519. You got the GameCube, the, you got... Luigi's Mansion and Wave Race and an extra controller. I can't remember if you got a second memory card or just... I know we did get like the official memory card and then one of those random colorful third-party ones. Yeah. And you got like five $10 vouchers for Toys R Us. Then a Prima Guide for four games. Oh, and... I've got that guide. Good one. I've got that guide too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We used two of the vouchers on, I think, Rogue Leader and Burnout. And that was our launch title set and i remember launch day came around and it was you know begging my parents oh can you know can we stop at toys r us on the way home and they're like you know no no time for that today and then massive disappointment all right fine we'll have because i think yeah it must have been a thursday because yeah things always used to come out on thursdays shops would get their wednesday delivery and then you'd get your thursday release yeah so thinking oh no yo this is gonna be the longest day ever gonna have to wait till friday and i get home and 
or what's sitting there at home, they've gone and picked it up for us and big surprise and yeah, just like Christmas in the middle of the year and sat there. I think, I think all I did that first day was play the uh, Rogue Leader tutorial and fly around and try and find all of the um, random floating symbol things and failing at it. And then it was you know, time to stop and <laughs> don't think my sister got a look in at all. She got ripped off over half. Yeah, um, I think she still feels that way t- today as well. But yeah, she's she's free to borrow it whenever she likes. And yeah, there's, <laughs> she's uh, in- introduced the boyfriend to all the games that he missed out on at the time, and yeah, massive playthroughs of Resi Four. And but um, yeah, we'll get onto that later, I'm sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, actually, that's another thing about the launch. Um, do you guys remember the uh, initial group of um game cases? All the first yes. party titles. And they, instead of having the normal little tabs that like bent inwards mm. to release the disc, the first party titles, no, they were just solid and did not want to release those discs. Did, did you guys ever break a disc on that? Because I know, I know I have heard <laughs> yes. of people who did snap their discs. No, I didn't break At a disc. At launch. I was scared. At launch, I oh. broke my disc of Rogue Leader. <laughs> oh, no. It snapped. It was the most depressing thing. <laughs> Thankfully, well, somehow I'll have to talk to her one day about it. But mum went to because we bought it at the Toys R Us with the launch, and then my mum took it to Kmart because it was local, our local Kmart, and got another copy. And <laughs> I never saw that other copy again. So I don't know if she wow. just bought the second copy or if they actually accepted it as like a defective stock and gave her another copy. I don't know what the story was there, but I got another copy. Magic mum powers, that's what. So, like, that's all that mattered to my seven-year-old <laughs> yeah. self, that I still have Rogue Lead, I could still play it. But, like, yes, I snapped it. And I just remember every time getting one of those games out after that, I was just, I was so careful because I was freaked out. Terrified. Like, like, yeah, it was like having PTSD about, oh, is it going to snap? Will it snap this time? Because it was just the worst design, case design. It, it, mm. Every time you pulled it out, it just, you could feel the stress of the disc. Yeah, I, I always, like tried to like make like a circle with my fingers underneath and just like press down with my thumb just to try and you know evenly distribute the weight and like push the disc up and i uh, ne- never had any disasters yet but yeah don't, don't think i want to put them back in those cases just <laughs> to be safe did you just get other gamecube games of games you don't care about the replacement <laughs> yeah. cases or is that what well, you no, did? i ended, ended up um i know my dad like was I, I don't know how he finds things, but yeah, he managed to find like a big W had some like samples of these game wallets and they they were like, oh yeah, now we've got these, we, we're going to stock them, but we're not. So I know you can have them. And yes, yeah, so I got like, had like half a dozen game wallets for GameCube games and I was, cool. I, like never saw anyone else with them. And yeah, so all my, all my games lived in there safe from the cases. <laughs> safe from the cases. <laughs> so good to hear that you two were smart enough not to snap a GameCube disc. So it's an extra couple of years from seven to like whatever age I was, like nine or something. That's that makes a difference, Brendan. <laughs> oh, clearly, uh, clearly you understood how opposable thumbs worked by the <laughs> wisdom of the elders, the knowledge that comes with age. So I guess thinking back to that first year of the GameCube, there was just so many, there's so many big games that launch had felt because yes, you had Luigi's Mansion and Rogue Leader and Wave Race, but and P- Pikmin was at launch right too, right? Uh, it was, la- it was like launch, launch window. It came came later, like with um Smash. Yeah, because that's exactly what I was about to pivot to. That that launch window had games like Pikmin, like Smash Brothers, and the games just seemed to keep on coming back in the day. Like, and then it wasn't long after early two thousand and three, about a year after launch, is when you had, I think it was within like a couple of months, you had 
Mario Kart Double Dash, F-Zero GX, and Kirby's Air Ride all releasing, like, side by side. Was 2003 Metroid Prime as well? Yes. That was also launch window. Well, not launch window, but, like, not long after launch, I seem to recall. Yeah, or maybe it was, like, post-launch window in the US, then we had to wait a little bit longer. I think so, because I remember that, like, just as a kid, you spend lots of time in the gaming section of shops when you're out with your parents and the like, and I just remember... To begin with, all the shops had the demo of Rogue um, later. It was always the Death Star level. And even though I had it back at home, I remember always just playing that ad nauseum over and over again because great level. Over time, it was replaced by Metroid Prime. And I remember there was always demo kiosks because that fit like the first level of Metroid Prime where you've exited your ship and you're going around to explore. And to this day, I'll argue that it's not really a good level to demo. Like you don't really get much out of it honestly you're just walking around this deserted level and i remember playing it and i didn't have i didn't go buy metroid prime back in the day because it didn't really grip me that demo what was the experience you guys had with demo kiosks back in the day i i, I had the same uh, yeah my toys r us had the um the one that had uh rogue leader on it and yeah played played a lot of that there when we were there trying to decide on our pre-order and i, I think you could do luigi's mansion on there as well Otherwise, the only other one I remember was at a Big W, which used to live next to a um, school, I think a primary school or maybe a high school. And it's, I remember playing the Star Fox Adventures demo on there. And I just, I literally could not walk forwards because the control stick was just completely thrashed on there from being constantly pounded by kids coming around after school. (laughs) That poor demo kiosk. Oh yeah, it was it was destroyed. Other than the ones you guys have mentioned, the main ones I remember was the Village promo where they had GameCubes with F Zero. That's what I remember pretty vividly. But other than that, yeah, the Metroid Prime is the other one I recall from early early in the life. Wait, Village had F Zero? Oh, didn't know yeah, that. There was a weird cross promo thing with. F-Zero and Nintendo and... Village as in the cinemas? Yeah, the cinemas. Because I remember they also had the AX arcade machine as part of it. At least that's what I recall. So thinking about the features of the GameCube, what what really springs to mind for the two of you? Because I know for me, one of the features that 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 just captivated me was the multiplayer focus of it, similar to the 64, that you had the four controller ports, unlike the PS4. Yes, I know the Xbox had four controller ports, but I didn't particularly have any friends that had an Xbox growing up. I know there were some, like, family friends and the like did, but no one close to me. So, like, that was out of my mind as always GameCube versus PS2. And I just always remember that was the one argument you'd use on the playground or just when you're arguing with friends about what's better, you'd say, well, the GameCube, you can play with four people. There's all these games that are designed for four-player multiplayer like your Mario Parties, your Smashes, your Mario Karts, and a whole manner of third-party games. Whereas on the PS2, it was very much the case that if there was multiplayer, it was just two-player multiplayer. And the games that had four-player multiplayer were your ones with generally attachment peripherals, like your Sing Stars, your Buzzers, or like a few did use the PS2 multi-tap, but I actually never saw a PS2 multi-tap growing up in to this day, I don't think I've ever actually seen one. So I don't really know anyone that's ever used one. Yeah, I think I've seen like one or two in like a Game Traders or something, but I've never seen anyone 
in like their house using one. Yeah, I have a friend that has one or had one, but we never used it because he had a GameCube, and so we played that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things. Like I, I definitely like a lot of my friends. We had GameCubes, so there was a that was the majority of what we played. The ones that had PS2s. Yeah, we just didn't play games at their house very often. And Xboxes, yeah, we would play like Halo mostly. Uh, maybe Fusion Frenzy, but yeah, I, I mostly remember Halo. Whereas GameCube, we had a quite a large array of titles amongst us to to play with. So I think that's why it was the, the go-to. Actually, one thing I remember, um, in like all the pamphlets and stuff before the GameCube came out, like one of the like actual key points on there was industry-leading load times. <laughs> um yeah like that was like a big thing they sort of featured and like sort of took pride on and like i I remember like you know games they had load screens but they were usually pretty short then you go play like a playstation game at a friend's place like wow this is taking so long what, what, what's going on here and the other thing well the gamecube controller like i mean to this day it's still basically the only nintendo controller to have analog triggers and it's also like the only one to have the weird sort of hybrid triggers because you know it had had an analog portion but then at like maximum squeeze you also had a digital button at the bottom which a few games made some cool uses of and they did copy those um triggers for the original classic controller on wii but uh nothing ever used that and then they got superseded by the um classic controller pro which just went fully digital so i know it seemed like the classic controller was being geared up as like a gamecube replacement but then they i know they just didn't use it in gamecube mode yeah it was super super weird like that trend like that history of nintendo going from those quite innovative analog you know triggers at the time uh to yeah as you said just abandoning them compared to if you look at other systems which are really focused in on enhancing their their triggers really with you know like the haptic sort of feedback of the the ps5 controller and I think similar on the Xbox uh, One Series S controllers. It's it's really odd how they've they've completely ditched that concept because it's just it was as you said there were some really cool uses. I mean the one that obviously stands out is Mario Sunshine for me at least. But um you know even things like racing games and stuff at the time it was just extremely like you know cool and and felt good to use. <laughs> oh definitely, it added that extra layer of interactivity that really it just felt good to use those triggers. Like, to this day, if you're playing Mario Sunshine, like, it's... I haven't played it yet on the Switch, the Mario Sunshine port, but I just have the feeling it's not going to feel the same. How how did they deal with that, actually? Did either of you play Mario Sunshine on the Switch? Yeah, I, I did. They basically um, just mapped, like, the spray, like, the, you know, where you shoot out, like, a big blast as to, like, a button... Oh so yeah, it was and like it's out. like hold 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 down multiple buttons to do different levels of strength. So yeah, it's I mean it's about all you could do, um, given the controller, but luckily they patched in that proper GameCube controller support, so after that I didn't didn't go back to, <laughs> to my pro controller on it. Oh, so they do have GameCube support. Oh, that's good. They patched it in a few months after that. Like, because obviously you could use a GameCube controller, but it just acted like a pro, and then they patched in proper GameCube support to 3D All-Stars, which is good, but... Yeah, so it recognises it as a uniquely a GameCube controller. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you can play it uh, 
as intended. Actually, uh, did except in HD. But before before they patched it in, did the um, did it like take the analog part of the triggers as like the button, or did it only use the digital part? No, as far as I I didn't try with it, but as my understanding was, it used it just as the digital part because there was just a bunch of YouTubers talking about it. That was what um. Smash Brothers Brawl did when you played with a GameCube controller as well. It ignored the analog part, which always completely threw me. Because like you, know, you get like you get like the tiny bit of shield when you put in like a tiny bit of the analog in melee, and I don't know, mm. I, I couldn't I couldn't get the timing to like do a landing with just going for the dig- digital instead. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that for Brawl that it. I know a lot of people said, "Oh, you have to play Brawl with a GameCube controller," but it just I always preferred using a classic controller pro for that exact reason that the triggers felt better because you it just felt odd partially squeezing the ganky trigger and it not reacting and not doing anything at all also like yeah they were just more comfortable so like i've always found with all like xbox controllers and like having to hold their analog triggers i get like i know i get fatigued fingers but i know never with gamecube i think it's still one of the most ergonomic controllers nintendo came out with i guess my only criticism of it would be the weird C stick. I, I I still think it should have been a proper size stick, but I do. It felt very much like an evolution of the C buttons on the Nintendo sixty four. So maybe that's why they went with a more of a thumb stick than an actual analog stick. But it always felt like a weird design choice on my end. Now, the thing that always struck me as weird was just that they didn't have like a second shoulder button on the left to map uh, to match Z. Mm. I, I know I saw some third control third party controllers that had. I think they usually call it like the M button, but I think it was just like a copy of Z. Talking about controllers for the Nintendo GameCube, we can't go past probably the Nintendo's attempt to have innovative controllers for the GameCube, mm. which was the cross compatibility the GameCube had built in with the Nintendo Game Boy Advance, which was something they pushed quite early on. Well, I guess not from launch, but I seem to recall probably about a year in or so, they were very much started to heavily promote this idea of, oh, you can use the GameCube and the Game Boy Advance together. There's all these games that have cross-compatibility and, like, they started rolling them out and it probably, it hit its height with, was it around 2004 with um, Four Swords Adventure? I think that sounds about right. That was 2004 or five. I don't think it was 2005. That seems a bit late, but around that period, it came out and it was this idea, well, everyone has to have you have to have four Game Boy Advances and four Game Boy um, Advance link cables and you could go at it on a big screen TV. Did did you guys get into the Game Boy Advance functionality much or was it just a footnote for you guys? I mean, yes to both. <laughs> I jumped in on it right at the start because I needed it for Metroid Prime and Metroid... Wait, was it Fusion or Zero Fusion. Mission? That it, uh, I, oh, no, I can't remember now if it... Which, if it linked up to both, or because yeah, and I, I know one one of them it let you unlock the NES version of Metroid. Yeah, I think it must have been on on Zero Mission. It let you unlock the NES version, but then on Metroid Prime, it let you play with the Fusion suit. Ah, yes, that's that's pretty cool actually. Then yeah, the other one I used a lot was Animal Crossing, where it let you yeah, um. Same. Yeah, you had, had your little island and basically you could go there and get lots of money by feeding the inhabitant all the fruit from the trees that you planted. And then you could like, I can't remember exactly what it was that I did. You could you could sort of 
game the system by like basically retrieving all your goods but then not resetting the island or like i think you could save a second copy to it if you had a second gba and then like you could restore that and sort of keep making infinite money and i yeah I, i abused that a fair bit and the other one was um wind waker and using its little sort of assistant thing and getting free bombs <laughs> and free access to spots that you couldn't normally get with without using the little hover feature and just trying to get all the hidden statues for it oh i know that was the other th- the other thing i really liked in um animal crossing you could use it to make your own patterns like you could freely do um pattern design for clothing and things and like do that wherever you wanted and instead of having i think you had to go to the mabel sisters if you only had the game and i think buy materials to do it i can't remember but yeah otherwise you could do like free design on the gba by itself and like use the d pattern it was much easier to control you know i didn't have any friends with cables to be able to play four swords together so i think i only played that one solo but I mean, solo was better because you do the big single-player gigantic tornado spin, which I don't think you could do with multiplayer. Yeah, I always remember Four Swords Adventure because it was a game I did briefly own. I, I remember pre-ordering, I got it, and then because I got it just based on the fact it was a Zelda game and I liked Zelda, but for whatever reason at the time, then I took it home and realised, oh, it's a 2D Zelda game. What is this 2D thing? And I just thought, oh... This is a bit lame. So it was back... Well, they still do, but EB have their seven-day return policy. So I took it back and returned it and got the cash <laughs> oh, back, no. which I regret to this day because <laughs> that game is worth a lot of money. But And it's actually a good game and I'd love to play through it, but I never had the... Expi- uh, the folly of youth. Yeah, so one day I need to get a copy at a very overinflated price, especially in 2021, and play through it. But I'll, I'll do it one day. Did, did you experience the Four Sword Adventure... Zach? Yeah, no, I was lucky enough to have uh, a few friends with Game Boy Advances and some cables. Um, I think Four Swords Adventure came with a cable and I already had one, so I had two yes. two cables um, from memory or maybe more. Um, so yeah, that we played multiplayer, which was great. Yeah, and so yeah, I played that through, I don't know if I played the whole way through multiplayer, but certainly a few sessions of Forward Sword Adventures, rented Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and did the same, uh, played it like over a weekend with some friends, which was, again, a really fantastic experience and super lucky that um, we were able to do that. So yeah, I, in some regards, even though like I don't think about the Game Boy Advance link cable as being a massive thing of the GameCube, just hearing what you know you guys talked about has opened up a lot of memories because I used that thing a ton in hindsight, you know, obviously, you know, Animal Crossing, as you mentioned, but even like Animal Crossing with the e-reader cards, because, you know, that's like linked two weird accessories together to be able to like, up, you know, get weird letters from different animals if you scan their villager card. You know, I, I don't think I ever actually used any of my e-reader cards. Yeah. Like, no. I, I just, I, cause, just because I didn't know how they work, I wasn't sure, like, is this a single use thing? Should I save it to use later? <laughs> and I was just like... Yep, the e-reader was another thing I took back because I didn't understand how it worked. <laughs> you monster! You monster! <laughs> You're regretting it and now. That's two things from the GameCube generation we can... Actually, three things, because I also returned a copy of Path of Radiance because I didn't think it was as good <laughs> oh, as the GBA that's version. A bad oh, that's God. bad. <laughs> 
I did get it for around a hundred dollars, like all back when I got you Guggenheimer to get yeah. a copy as well. So like I didn't really pay that much more than at launch, so it wasn't the worst decision, but yeah, still it was reversible. Still that's okay. <laughs> Another one that was big was it was Pokemon. Um and this is now I think about how yeah. I, I got my third um cable because I have Pokemon box, uh Ruby and Sapphire as well, which um you know, unlike little Brendan who, you know, returned things that he hated, I just kept because I was like, this, is a, this isn't even a game, but I've got it now and I'm glad I did because it's not an easy game to come by. Yeah, getting like Jirachi through Pokemon Channel and then obviously moving Pokemon around, Colosseum, Gale of Darkness, etc. Was, was a big sort of part of my GameCube at Game Boy Advance experience. So, yeah, the old little purple cable got a, got, got a lot of use. <laughs> I actually found something out that was quite interesting when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, which is a bit of an anomaly in itself, because I used it for Pokemon Channel as well. That was one of my main uses. I finished that game just to get Jirachi, and uh, apparently Jirachi was a PAL exclusive for Pokemon Channel. Yeah, which is interesting, because it was PAL exclusive for Pokemon Channel, because the US got a extra disc with Pokemon Coliseum. Uh, which just gave them Jirachi like a like a download distribution kind of thing via the, the same cable, which is odd. <laughs> it was a separate GameCube disc that all it did was give you Jirachi. I think, unless it was just on Coliseum's code, but I thought it was like a special promo disc is what I've read, but I haven't seen it being not American and not seeking that kind of collectible. Actually, well, I, th- I feel like I remember something about the... um. I think the e-reader cards in Pokemon Box or Pokemon Channel were like Australian exclusive, like on top of being PAL exclusive. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, no, no, because um, Europe didn't get the e-reader. Oh, we, we yeah, were, that's we, right. Because we were in that weird thing where, so most of our GBA releases were just US releases. And so because of that, we got like the e-reader compatible version of uh, Mario versus Donkey Kong, even though the e-reader cards were never released, and yeah, I'd think yeah, Europe didn't get the Mario Advance for. Actually, I, I don't know if their copy had the compatibility still in, or they just didn't get the cards. I can't remember how that one worked out, but yeah, there were a few sort of weird region discrepancies there, and we were sort of half on each side of the fence. It's fascinating. Yeah, there's, there's so many weird little quirks from back then um, with regional differences, timing, et cetera, compared to these days. Um, yeah, probably added to some of the fun and mystery of all these like quirky extra modes and, and features that uh, you just don't see as much in, in modern gaming. Actually, well, one, one thing, like still on Four Swords Adventures before we leave, um, I remember one of the Adelaide meetups for Aussie Nintendo, they had... They have like four GameCubes there, all with Game Boy players, and they used that to play on a fifth GameCube that was running Four Swords Adventures. So they they had like the full full TV set up for Four Swords for four players. Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. Oh, cool. that is pretty amazing, though. <laughs> the things yeah. that you could do, because <laughs> then you also have the bro- well, you had the broadband adapter <clears throat> that wasn't in Australia, and you also had the land capability of Mario Kart Double Dash that. You could play with eight players, couldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I I have got myself a pair of broadband adapters, and I did take those along to a meetup once, and we played uh, Mario Kart in land mode. And honestly, it was it was disappointing because it is the most bare bones mode you could imagine. Like it's just 
all you get is a single race. You, I think you don't even get to choose your characters. You just, yeah, you're just thrown in the race and it sort of just happens and that's it. Like there's no like sort of points or anything like there's, it's not like any of the other sort of multiplayer modes that you see where it's sort of, I know it's sort of built up in like, there's an actual structure to play with and you've got like points building up in a, an eventual winner or anything like that. It's just, yeah, it, it very much seems like a demo mode. I, I have not tried, um, I think we did try Kirby Air Ride, but I, I was like completely unfamiliar with the game. So didn't even know what to do. And yeah, I haven't tried 1080 yet. Yeah, because those were the three games, wasn't it? Yeah. What you described Double Dash as just reminds me of playing Mario Kart DS without the game when you could use multiplayer. That's basically yeah. what it was like, yeah. But you're forced to play as Shy Guy and yeah. it's just a bit lame. Like, it's just not particularly enjoyable. But you're just like, oh, you can still play the game, you don't have to buy it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's sort of, yeah, make, making do with what you've got, but... I have not tried um, Fantasy Star Online yet. I've got both of the games, but I, I, I was toying with the idea of like getting another copy and like letting a friend borrow borrow um, one of the broadband adapters and that and like trying to play that together. Because I, I think there's still people still run servers for it. You can still play it online. Yes. But um, yeah, someday. Now I've always thought about trying it just for the sake of it, but that would involve me getting a GameCube again, so and then getting a copy of Fantasy Star Online and getting a broadband adapter, so <laughs> probably a bridge too far there. Imagine not having a GameCube, jeez. <laughs> but then, um, yeah, well, I guess r- tangentially related to the broadband adapter, there was the uh, keyboard controller to go with it. Yeah, I've seen that once in real life. Um for a, a, a avid fantasy star player at um at uni, um God, it's an impressive looking little or not little big uh, controller, I should say. It's 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 heavy. The, the 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 one flaw with it though, the start button is on the left side of the keyboard, and I find I always use my right thumb to go for start. It just makes it really awkward. Or like yeah, they could have even had start on both sides, so then you don't have to choose. <laughs> like your M and Z button, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, one one really cool thing with it though, it does work with an action replay, so it's really easy to type in those action replay codes. <laughs> what about? Did you guys ever see the Logitech Driving Force steering wheel? Yeah, well, I think so. I definitely recall a Logitech steering wheel of some kind. Mm-hmm. I I know that there was like a Ferrari branded one that was just like a basic one, but like the lot the um. Wait, you know, Driving Force? It was Speed Force. I think Driving Force was the... Yeah, um, Speed Force, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving Force was the PlayStation version, I think. Don't, don't know why I wrote down um, Driving Force. But, you know, yeah, I I, ne- I never saw, like... I think I heard about it once. I read about it in Nintendo Gamer and, you know, kept an eye out for it and just never saw it appear. But then um, managed to score one off eBay and it works with Mario Kart Double Dash, but it doesn't really feel like it was made for it properly like it sort of feels like you're using like um analog controls to do digital inputs that that kind of awkward feeling but it works really well with burnout 2 and f-zero gx oh very nice i was gonna ask about f-zero and how it handled but that'd be fantastic with a wheel oh it'd be fantastic with four players playing on four wheels i'm pretty sure you can do that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if anyone in the known universe has actually pulled that off. <laughs> yeah, I've. I mean, I, well, 
and it's been ages since I've looked for one, but I've not seen very many of them around. I'm almost certain I have one, which I had completely forgotten about. But I am recalling playing Mario Kart and Simpsons uh, Road Rage with it now that you've unlocked that memory. (laughs) You're such a hoarder, Zach. I think I have one somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where is a good question? I mean, it's at my parents somewhere. I just don't know where in the pile of objects. (laughs) At least it's safe. Until your parents start just selling all your stuff because you haven't moved it out. It's just Mm. gathering cobwebs. Yep. No, no, it's gathering of value. <laughs> that too. That, that, that's, that's how you sell them on it. Investment. Yes, it's appreciating like gold. Actually, I was going to say, um, did you guys want to um, cover like homebrew at all? Yeah, we can talk. Let's talk about homebrew. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's like, I think GameCube's kind of where Nintendo homebrew started, sort of. I mean, there's kind of like weird um like backup carts and stuff the other ones but like i know i i just remember people like talking a lot about like oh gamecube you can run linux on that i still don't know what the point of it is but Wait, you, know, you can. can do it yeah yeah the, the gamecube linux project was like been around for ages maybe maybe it was based on because the i guess it started back in the, that period with the dreamcast of oh yeah the dreamcast runs microsoft off um well, wasn't it a version of Microsoft 2000 or XP? Oh, uh, or... Uh, Microsoft, uh, sorry, Windows CE, I think. Yeah, sorry, Windows CE, yes. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, that's what kicked it off. And I think that the, the PlayStation 2, didn't it have like an official Linux release? PS3 definitely did. Yeah, PS3 did. I, I, I feel like I remember that being a thing on PS2 as well and that like... Yeah, that people were doing, uh, yeah, running Linux on that. Yeah, because I do recall there was the whole uh, PR drive about, oh, yeah, the PS2 is as powerful as a supercomputer. <laughs> oh, yeah, can, it's p- powerful enough to launch a nuclear missile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go to the Pentagon, it's just wall-to-wall <laughs> PS2s. Oh, I mean, weren't there stories about, like, you know, the Taliban, like, buying up PS2s so they could I have this... Arsenal ready. <laughs> oh, I can just imagine that in the in the Bora Bora mountains of Afghanistan, <laughs> there's just a cave full of PS2s. Well, actually, yeah, wasn't Osama a huge um, GTA fan? <laughs> like they, they found they found his like PCs were like loaded with copies of it. Well, well we all know that violent video games does propagate <laughs> violence, so it makes sense. Oh yeah, of course. But um, yeah, no the. I guess in in recent years the sort of homebrew and like I know post release support has taken off a lot because like you've seen um like there's um like you can get drive replacements like replace your um the GameCube's like laser with like a SD card slot so you can just play games straight from those um, and I think they've used there's one as well where you can um plug into the serial two port that nothing ever used underneath. There was, you had your high-speed port for your Game Boy player. There was Serial 1, which was used for the modem and broadband adapters. And there was a little Serial 2 next to it, which just... I think there's like one picture of like a dev kit with something coming out of there, but no one knows what it actually was. And yeah, some some guys figured out how to make a tiny little board that slots in there. And with your homebrew, you can load in um, your backups off, off a memory card in there. 
And then there's been um, the, the projects to revive the digital out, output on there since the um, official component cables are what, $400, $800? What are they going for these days? Yeah. They absolute unicorns, those <laughs> cables. I did, did see one down at um, Gamesman. They have one in sitting in their cabinets in their museum. Oh, I, I thought you meant they had one for sale. Oh, no, no, it was it was for sale. I did take a picture. I can't remember the price tag. It was at least $300, probably way more. But, um, yeah, no, yeah, you've got, like, I think the Carby and the GCHD, which now they've figured out how to make use of it. And, yeah, really good products. If, if you can cop the expense, well worth it. Gooky tick of approval. <laughs> Guggenheim a tick of approval. You've heard it here, folks. You know, honestly, so happy with it. Like the the GCHD, it lets you use a HDMI, or you can use the um the Wii's component cables, which I do have some thanks to like a I don't know fifty percent off Harvey Norman sale. Yeah, and there's a few third party options for Wii component cables that are decent as well, so you can still mm. get those to this day. Yeah, well, yeah, because they they were just straight analog cables, not like like the GameCube ones. The problem is it was a proprietary thing like it has like a custom video card built into it that converts the digital signal into analog which is why they're so like yeah rare and expensive and not oh, exactly replaceable oh uh, if only i'd rung up nintendo australia back in the day and gotten one yeah well I, um one of the guys on the forum he he said one day that there that nintendo australia was clearing them out for like nine dollars a piece and that and he got a couple why did I not yeah, hear I about this? That. Why did no one tell me this? Why did I miss out? My life is ruined. Because that was really late as well. It was like I, it was like 2010 or 2011 for memory. Yeah, I was going to say 2009 or something. The dying period of the Wii age. And they were like, oh, yeah, they, they still have them. Like, yeah. ring up and find out. So do you have any experience with homebrew or component cables, Zach? Uh, no. <laughs> my my uh, i mean the, unless you count like using an action replay to cheat games which is not really homebrew but that's the that's about as close as i got <laughs> oh that is very wholesome indeed i think it was just again at the age i was it was not a thing i was exposed to and then since then it's the kind of thing i read about the modern stuff online but i'm too lazy to participate in <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all mine has come from recent years. Definitely didn't know anything about it at the time. Oh, exactly. It's it's about breathing new life into the console, which, well, we're 20 years on and there's still people tinkering with hardware, still people tinkering with software, which is quite astounding. But, of course, we've talked a bit, bit about retro gaming in the past, but it's definitely a favourite of many people, the GameCube, isn't it? And we started the episode talking about our early memories and the hist- a bit of the history of the console. We talked about the Game Boy Advance compatibility. We've talked about the homebrew and how it still lives on in 2021. But what we haven't really talked about yet is the games of the GameCube. And like I mentioned in my opening monologue, that's really what sticks to me with the console and why it, like, it still has a fond place in my heart is that it just had so many top-tier games and just so many games that I played countless hours of and just a really worthwhile experiences as gamers to experience so if we have to think back onto our favorite games and if we had to construct a top three personal favorite GameCube games what would you guys put in your top three I'll start with you Zach what what would we don't it doesn't have to be in any order but what would you include in your list 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, and I was tossing up, do I go interesting or do I just go like honest, which is probably very vanilla and boring. I, I'm going to go with honest. Yeah, going to go with my heart. I mean, certainly for me, uh, and we sort of touched on it briefly, but one of the ones I I loved and played, you know, to death was Mario Kart Double Dash. And, you know, I mean, go, coming out of the 64, I love Mario Kart 64. I didn't get the Game Boy Advance one because uh, it didn't make sense to me to why would I play Mario Kart by myself if, unless my friends get it uh, or have Link Cable. Because it has anyway. the best Rainbow Road, that's why. <laughs> well, in hindsight, maybe, but at the time it didn't, you know, P-Bane kid didn't understand. And then Double Dash was just super exciting. I remember, you know, it getting announced. Uh, I, I think by then that Nintendo magazine had maybe died and Hyper uh, was what I was reading because I think that's what my subscription swapped over to. And I remember just seeing, you know, the screenshots uh, at the E3 it was announced at and just sort of waiting for it to come out. And eventually, obviously, it did. And it became just a staple of not only just single player, like I played a ton getting, you know, all the gold trophies to unlock mirror mode and, you know, PD Piranha and King Boo. But then, you know, playing multiplayer, both battle and racing with, with friends, um, was just it was a constant for our our you know hanging out on the weekend for for many years and it's probably one of the only mario karts if not the only one that i think like really has or continues to have a strong identity i mean maybe sorry there's probably a couple that do but it's 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 one of the strongest identities i say because of the the dual character mechanic which has never been repeated and makes it super fun to go back to and and still a completely fun and original experience if you've never played double dash before versus say i don't know i would never say to someone you have to go play mario kart 7 you can just play 8 that's fine like it's good enough but for, for double dash i'd say yeah give it a shot if you know if that came on a, on a switch virtual console or you know someone had picked up a gamecube or a wii and was just looking for some stuff to play it would absolutely be something i say pick up a copy and and you know go like I'd say go baby Mario or Luigi to get the chain jump. And then, um, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe, I'm just trying to think who my second, maybe like one of the toads to get the, the super fast gold mushroom. Either way, but uh, that's that's my tip. <laughs> I assume you guys played Double Dash. You, you must have, I, I would have thought. Oh, yeah. Got to go like Wario and Waluigi and just throw bombs at everyone. <laughs> How good was playing co-op as well? Like, it, yes, it was a bit of a gimmick, but it, I think it was great. One person driving the cart and the other person handling all the items and you could swap mid race as well. Yeah, I think it was really good as well for like that mode for like if you're playing with someone who wasn't super into games and maybe was a bit intimidated by the racing, but just like telling them when to use items, that was that was fine. And then they just like ram people, like push them or whatever it is with that uh function that was that was super cool. Yeah, you'd think since they brought back that well they, they introduced mechanics into mario kart like the driver's assist and the like for accessibility like i think that's a good mechanic to have in as well the double character double player um um, playability of the game Mm. they could add in like amiibo functionality you've got your little ai character that you play (laughs) with you train with and you (laughs) tag team with them nintendo what are you sleeping on the job the idea's right there it sounds like you're giving a corporate presentation (laughs) at guggenheimer there Think about all the money you could make, guys. <laughs> well, I mean, like amiibo battles in um in Smash were fun. 
had that one tournament at PAX. <laughs> it would be great to see something like that in Mario Kart. <laughs> Mario, you're just watching an AI play Mario Kart. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I know. If they fleshed out like the second player role in the back and like you had more to do there, it could take off. Yeah, so I, I definitely echo your sentiment, Zach. It's a fantastic game, but Baby Park should die in a Ooh, very dark controversial. place. In hell. <laughs> I didn't mind Baby Park. I can't think of a particular track I disliked. There, might, there probably was one, but nothing's standing out at the moment. I did like the one with the dinosaurs. That was always good fun. Yeah, the dinosaur one was good. I think in some regards, the Rainbow Road was not super exciting at the time. That might be the one that didn't upset me, but I was maybe a bit disappointed. I think it was mostly because I was had very high expectations, for whatever reason, of the 64 one. And I think maybe it was like, I liked how you saw the characters in the sky um, in the 64 one as a kid, and they didn't really repeat that. And I, I think that just tainted my, my view on that, that version of Rainbow Road. But even today, I can barely remember it <laughs> compared to some of the more... Not enough neon. Yeah. Just life in general. There's not enough that, neon. That's probably it. It was just not enough color and neon there to, to stand out like some of the better Rainbow Roads. Yeah, I agree, because I think... What the 64 one nailed was the atmosphere because you had the visuals, you had you could see the track in the um, background, you had the excellent soundtrack, it just all joined together. It's probably the best version of Rainbow Road outside of the F-Zero Rainbow Road, but that's a completely different topic. <laughs> Guggenheimer, what's what your first top three? I will do mine in order. I think my number three would be Resident Evil 4. Spooky. I don't know what it was about it, but that was just like the most replayable game for me. Like, I I don't think I've ever played a single player game as many times as I have Resi 4. And actually, I, I remember um friend of the show, Richard, one of his like family friends or something, his, his dad, apparently he played like the game like every single year for like, I don't know, something like 10 years after it came out. He, he was just always doing playthroughs of it. It was such a good game and and yeah i i I did like all the grinding to try and unlock everything find every treasure get the worst one was unlocking the hand cannon you had to play the uh, mercenaries mode and get i think like a five star rating with all the characters and one of them playing um playing hunk and trying to use his pea shooter of a submachine gun to take out like the huge guys where you just could not get the twitch damage on them that that took me forever and yeah that, that, was, that was a huge achievement once i like overcame that yeah resi 4 game of the year 2005 it's a game i always want to go back and play because it's one that i completely missed because i've never really gotten into horror games i'm slowly easing myself into horror films and a few horror games but it's one that I know it's not necessarily really a traditional horror game per se. It's not like, yes, it is, but there is the action component to it as well. So I've, I've always wanted to try Resident Evil 4, particularly similar to what you've just said. It's, it has a very good reputation as one of the best GameCube games, was briefly an exclusive. That's a whole other topic there, but <laughs> it, it does seem to have... Capcom a, 5. <laughs> Capcom 5, yes. <laughs> I'm surprised your number three wasn't PNO3. Oh, well, it's, it, it it was in the candidates list, but there's, I mean, it just doesn't quite have, 
didn't quite take off to what it sort of set out to be, I don't think. But like, yeah, Resi 4, though, it's a complete package. And plus, I mean, yeah, it had action commands before, or quick time events, depending on what you want to call them, before everyone decided they hated them and wanted, and they were a bad thing. Like, there was like that. That's a Resident Evil game that has the quick time event where you punch the boulder, right? I think that's five. Oh, is that yeah, five? I think that might have been five. Yeah. It had one where you had to run from a boulder. Whenever I think of quick time events in Resident Evil, I just think of that punching boulder moment. Yeah, no, that was, uh, yeah, Chris Redfield in number five, I remember. Yeah, Resident Evil 4, great game. My experience was it was like one of those games my uh, one of my best friends had, uh, so I never owned the GameCube version, but I played through with him pretty much in completion um, uh, over a series of a few days, uh, and it was it was great. You know, I I briefly played Resident Evil Remake, I think, uh, after renting it and was scared very quickly and and did not play it for very long. (laughs) But uh, 4 was, I think, the right... I had the same thing, but like in reverse. Because I loved Resident Evil 4, I thought, okay, I'll go, you know, find the Resident Evil Remake and give that a go. And between like, yeah, the awkward, like, camera, like, you know, the fixed camera controlling the room and just... Yeah, it not controlling the same and being way scarier. I just like, no, I can't play this. Too scary. Yeah, can't do it. I'm out. Back to four, I go. <laughs> yeah, like four was, I think, the right balance between horror elements, but but uh, still, but you know, it was mostly action, and you, you, I guess, felt a bit more in control and a bit more powerful as Leon, and that probably helped a bit with my and his nerves. Yeah. But yeah, such a great game, and and you know, and made to be replayable, which I think is a really key feature for why someone like yourself can go in play it again and again and again because you are getting new things experiencing things slightly differently and i think that was a massive plus to it compared to a lot of games where you know it's it's you can play it again but it's the same thing just again <laughs> um where well, yeah, there, there was like a lot of little things like in certain ways you could die that would suddenly come as a surprise like did, did you ever die at the lake from the fish like before the fish battle uh, before like, the fish like, battle, I don't know if I did. Yeah, if you like went up to the water and like, because like, I, I saw there were fish in there, like, oh, cool, I can shoot the fish and get some health pickups. And then like, I think I missed and shot into the water and then it like woke up the fish and you came up and just ate me. I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's well, super cool. That, that can happen? What? <laughs> so, sorry, spo- spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't played it yet. Sorry, Tan. <laughs> oh, guys, I haven't played yet and you just <laughs> spoiled a 16-year-old game. I'm shattered, absolutely shattered. Uh, yeah. I would say it also, like, obviously Resident Evil always had a high profile, but I think, you know, 4 really took it from, like, being a, a very popular series to, like, put it up there with what I considered to be some of the best of the best, like like Zelda and Mario, um, and it led to, you know, 5 being quite a hotly anticipated game. Whether it delivered on those uh, anticipations is up for debate, I suppose, even though I enjoyed 5. But, um, yeah, it really, you know, deserves a spot as one of those best games of all all time oh definitely and i think it's a testament to the fact that whenever websites like ign or various youtubers do top 10 gamecube games it it's always there it's one you can pencil in alongside your metroid primes and the like almost as cliche as ocarina of time for 64 yeah exactly (laughs) ocarina time for 64 you can't talk about the 64 without that game and i think resident evil to an extent is like that which is Interesting, considering it's not a first-party Nintendo game. Yeah, true. Anyway, yeah, what, what's your top three? 
Yeah, starting with number three, even though this is probably a top three list that would the order would change probably every day if I thought about it every day, and maybe the games in the top three would change every day if I thought about it every day. Funny that, but number three, I'd have to pick Rogue Squadron 2, Rogue Leader, because the Rogue Squadron series has always been one that like I've absolutely adored. I remember playing the first one on the 64, watched my brother play lots of it and played it myself. I consider um, Battle for Naboo on the 64 part of the series as well, because while it was also a Factor 5 game, had pretty similar gameplay um, tropes in there. So, like, basically a Rogue Squadron game in all but name. And when Rogue Leader came, I think if you compare Rogue Leader, which was a 2001 GameCube game, to games that came out on the GameCube, like 2005, 2006, like, everything holds up about the game. The the graphics holds up, the sound design holds up, the the gameplay holds up. The way it used the... It, it fully used the console. It really uses the controller well. And it really captures those set-piece Star Wars moments a lot more than Rogue Squadron 1 did because when they developed Rogue Squadron 1, LucasArts at the time didn't let them use any of the like classic Star Wars set-pieces. They didn't let them use the music, really. It was very much, oh, you guys can create a video game, but we're very protective of our license. But I think they, tr- they must have trusted them a bit more when the second game came by and they were given the keys of the castle so to speak and like doing the death star trench run doing the death star 2 run through the core like it just has all those moments in the films that make it an iconic like like all the iconic spaceship moments in the film you can recreate in the game like battle for hoth and like i, I could go on and on about how it recreates a star wars feel but i think it's always just a special game for me because i remember playing it with my older brother. We used to hand over the controller, go for all the gold medal medals on the mission. And I think that culminated with Rogue Squadron 3, Rebel Strike, which allowed you to play the entirety of Rogue Squadron 2 co-op, which is a special experience in itself as well. And like, yes, Rogue Squadron 3 isn't quite as good. Like there's some, the clunky on foot missions probably, Oh god! Bring it down, and that's why I wouldn't put it in my top three, and why Rogue Squadron Two remains there. Because yes, Rogue Squadron Three evolved on Rogue Squadron Two, but not always for the best. So, like that's a game that's just quintessential GameCube for me. Like launch title, probably one of the best launch titles that have come out. And I think I was going to say I was like going to refer back to um, yeah, Cage Mages positing that you know is Rogue Leader the best launch game of all time. And pointing out that also, yeah, it was packed with all those, like all the movie clips that played in the background of the menus. Like there was all, all these little clips from the films. And did, didn't it also have like a commentary track? Like you could play the whole game with commentary yes. from the devs or something, which, and yeah, there were like a whole bunch of little extras and stuff you could unlock. Like the game was just packed with stuff. And yeah, as a launch game. That's quintessential factor five for you. Yeah. I really miss those guys. It's like, Rogue Squadron on Nintendo 64 had the Buick you could get for that cheat code. <laughs> yeah, some guy on the dev team had a Buick, so he decided to put it in the game. <laughs> I mean, it was just a reskinned V-Wing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But with like a, a more forgiving hitbox. Now, for me, it was all about the Y-Wing because that thing just shredded everything and just... Wait, Y-Wing? Uh, the, the Naboo Starfighter that you could unlock with the cheats. Yeah, that was just overpowered. <laughs> Zach, any memories of... Rogue Leader, or did it miss your 
Raider. I rented it once. Uh, I had never seen Star Wars, so it held very little um, value to me at that time. So, What kind of nerd are you? Uh, one that was... The worst kind. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've rectified that. I've now seen much Star Wars. I mean, ironically, the first Star Wars game I really enjoyed was Lego Star Wars on the GameCube, so uh, take that for what you will. <laughs> I, 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 com- I completely forgot that that series started there until I was like browsing through my shelves for this. Like, oh yeah, I got these from someone for some reason. Rogue Squadron 2, fantastic game. Buy it, play it, love it. Oh well, yeah, well, Zach should go and play it now, right? Now, now that Definitely. he knows. Yeah, no, I probably should Star actually. Wars. Now that I know Star Wars, I probably should go back and play it and probably the 64 one as well um, just to, you know, see the progression. <laughs> Yeah, fr- frame rate's a bit spotty. <laughs> I, I, I stand by that N- Battle for Naboo is probably a better game, which I think is a bit of a controversial view, but definitely try them out. No, we'll... Controversial take. Not the biggest fan of the Hoth mission in Rogue Leader. I think the um, Shadows of the Empire on the 64 is still the best Hoth. Ooh, very controversial. Something about it is just, just iconic to me. Yeah, so my number two, it's gotta be and partly because this is where at least in the west the series got its start is animal crossing i played a lot of animal crossing i remember uh you know getting it with its its memory card because it took up a whole what, what was the smallest memory card like a 52 megabyte yeah, 59 block 59 block or whatever yeah like took up a whole yeah one yeah and it, it, yeah so it came it came with one just just to make sure that you had the ded- dedicated space yeah which was which was a bit of a selling point to to the parents to why this is a, a better value game to get um <laughs> if i recall because uh, I, I remember seeing I, I went in 2000 and uh i want to say sure when would it have been 2000 and like two or three on a trip to the u.s and i remember in the hotel seeing like ads for animal crossing like those weird like if i don't know if you've seen them on youtube but like like four people like living their lives in an apartment as animal crossing character ads um and that had a massive impression. Don't think I ever saw those ones. You should, you should look them up. They're very weird ads. But that had a big impression on me. And so then, you know, a year or whatever it took between coming out in America to coming out here, seeing it on the shelf at an EB. I'm like, oh, that's that. That's I remember this now. And I, I had to had it on the wish list for Christmas or whatever it was. And I remember getting it and playing it. And then, as common practice was in the day, I'd take games. Well, we whenever someone got a new game, you take it to your friend's house when you next saw them just to play it together and it was yeah. yeah that didn't go down well as you can imagine for animal crossing it's not doesn't transition super well to a go and play for a short period of time but uh, uh, you know eventually friends would come to my house see what i've done a few of them picked up the game and that's when it really you know took off i had like three or four friends running their own little towns uh we did the whole you know swapping out our gamecube memory cards to get uh you know the different fruit uh and all that kind of stuff you know going to the island to get the the coconuts and it was just such a unique experience at the time like i'd never you know it was kind of pre the standard you know daily check-in mobile games that now are pretty common right these games that want you to come back every day to experience something quote-unquote new and keep you hooked that kind of experience wasn't super common back then or uh, if it was it certainly wasn't on on consoles did that predate the sims no it was uh, on gamecube oh. or, or the sims in general or, or just in in general uh, I, yeah, I no, think sims, when the sims, sims came one out. was 99 or 2000 yes sims was probably the closest experience i would have had because i remember i got the sims on gamecube as well 
the closest experience, but it didn't again have that real time component of you know like it matters if I come in at at today versus yesterday. Like that change of the clock was so integral, and it was just such a chill experience. And at the time, well, plus they actually spoke words in Animal Crossing, not gibberish. Yeah, actual like sort of high pitched, um, speedy words. Uh, and yeah, I, I you know I. It's one of those things I never thought would get as big as it did because it just felt like a weird little GameCube gem, you know, given how uh, unpopular the GameCube was and how weird the game was. But I'm so, you know, glad to see it has taken off to the heights that it has. Uh, but, you know, at least, as I said, for us in, in Australia, that's, you know, that GameCube version is where it all started for me, at least. And it's, it's yeah, it's still a great game. You can play the NES games in it, which you can't do in any other Animal Crossing. Um, and there's obviously a few other... That, that, that was the biggest draw to it for me. Yeah. Getting to play all, all these NES games in there. Yeah, well, like pre pre virtual console, digital download world. Mm. Um, it was massive. Back when like old games were just worthless throwaway things, like, oh, yeah, we can chuck this into our current release <laughs> game. Doesn't matter. Yeah. We won't see that anymore. Which is odd because Nintendo at the time were selling those GBA NES ports. Well, yeah, that, that they, they it was like the same set of games. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that all the games in Animal Crossing are on the e-reader cards. Oh, I know you're talking about the, the, the box oh, releases. Right, no, they had the game, yeah, Game Boy Classics yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think those were different ones. Yeah, because that was like Zelda and like I think Balloon mm. Fight. Strange. I can't remember. There was a few. I just had Mario. That's the yeah. I think I, I think there was Castlevania or something as well. Maybe. Yeah, there was. There was OG Castlevania. Animal Crossing had like, <clears throat> like the Mar- Mario Brothers. And I th- did it have the original Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr.? I think so. I'm pre- I definitely played a Donkey Kong Jr. on it. I almost think I played Donkey Kong Jr. Max, but maybe I'm just getting my memories confused. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, that that might that might have been on there. Then I think yeah, had I'm pretty, pretty sure I had Balloon Fight, Excite Bike. Might have had Excite Bike. I'm, I'm mainly thinking of the e-reader cards because I I didn't get to unlock very many of them. I think it had Ice Climber. I'm pretty yeah no, one of the there's like two e-reader cards in the Animal Crossing set that let you unlock NES games, and I'm pretty sure one of them is an Ice Climber. Can't remember what the other one is. But yeah, that not having the NES games in Wild World sort of put me off playing it as much. I couldn't get into. Like I played it a lot for like the first two months, then just it died off after that. I felt like I played a lot more of the GameCube one, just because of trying to get the NES yeah, games. so you're technically not really playing Animal Crossing at that point. You're playing NES <laughs> yeah. games. <laughs> I, one, one time I, I did, uh, I remember I was on the phone to my friend. He had one of them and he tried sending to them, sending it to me through Tom Nook. So he had the password. He was reading it out. I was writing it down. And then I went and you know typed it in and he just said, that's that's not it. And he, yeah, he, he stole our game. We couldn't, it just disappeared. Oh. He sent it to me and off into the ether. Tom Nook. Lousy raccoon. What a cruel man. <laughs> what a crook. <laughs> what a crook. <laughs> have, have, have you gone back and tried to play the first Animal Crossing like since then? Not in a long time. I definitely did at some point in the Wii era, like post City Folk or Let's Go to the City. I did a couple of years ago just because I wanted to set up something with like writing a letter in game to use for something else. And oh my God, it is so slow yeah <laughs> like I, I, don't, I don't know how we put up with it back in the day it is it's like just yeah, even get, getting through that whole intro sequence is a, it's a drag 
Yeah, there's so yeah. many quality of life improvements. Uh, like even just the inventory. I remember the old having to to get letters to put items in just to store more things and that kind of stuff. It's come <laughs> leaps and bounds since then. Other than as we said, the removal of the NES stuff. So it's it's definitely not like Double Dash where I say you got to go back and play the GameCube one. Um, so that to me, it's more that it stood out at the time as with how much of an impact it had. Yeah. Yes, it's it's historic. Has historic value. But yes, one one that unfortunately missed my radar. So I tried Animal Crossing Wild World on the DS, but that was another one my sister took back to EB Games and returned. So it's a it's a trend in the family, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Never return, only shelve. <laughs> but yeah, uh Guggenheimer number number two for you. What's what's on the list? <laughs> Oh, let's see which. I don't know, do, do you guys have a guess in mind? Because I, I think you guys can probably pick my top two. Well, I I pick the Metroid Prime would be one of them. Oh, that's interesting. My number two is Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. Oh, of course. Brad, Actually, sorry, I, I I know what your other, <laughs> I know what your number one will be. Yeah, yeah, you know now. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm obviously peripheral mad if it's a weird and unusual way to play a game then it's like going straight to my heart and dkjb that's that's right there it's a, a wait how, how would you how would you describe it it's an action rhythm platformer that you play with a pair of plastic bongos yeah, yeah that sounds about right that's that's that, that that's the elevator pitch right or you play with a wii mode if you're doing new play controls no you no that doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um it's like, cause it's, it's not just like a regular, like get through the obstacles, get to the end platform it's a, like, it's got like a combo system that you're building up points by like chaining together moves and trying to go you know, not interrupt that as best you can. And it's got a great soundtrack. You want to like, it would be cool if it had more of a rhythm aspect to it. I think like that's one of the games that sort of started me on this whole idea of like finding a rhythm game that sort of incorporates it into gameplay as opposed to like, you know, your guitar heroes where you're just like reciting a chart and playing the prescribed rhythm, like a game where you play along rhythm to the action that's happening. That's, that's something that I like the idea of. And I would always sort of try and play along to the beat as I played jungle beat. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just a sort of unique game that hasn't really sort of, been anything like that since that i can think of no yeah I, it's one i've always wanted to go back and play because i never got the bongo peripherals unfortunately like over the years there's been moments when i've almost bought it but held off which i wish i hadn't because as we all know retro prices keep on skyrocketing probably year on year but it's just one of those games that like you said is just so innovative and so different that there's not really anything else like it. And I think just from a historic perspective as well, it's a fascinating proposition that the director of that went on to make Mario Galaxy, which for many people is like one of the pinnacles of 3D Mario. So there's that aspect to it as well. Like it, You can see like the genesis of Mario Galaxy in Jungle Beat. Like if, like as, as you're a huge Jungle Beat fan playing Galaxy, I was like, Oh yeah, no, I can I can see like just like little things like the, the, the fur, fur yeah. effects on the bumblebees <laughs> and stuff. It's like it's like straight out of Jungle Bee. Like, I, okay, I, I can see exactly where this has come from. But also, it was just a really cool game for bringing out DK and his personality as your king of the jungle kind of thing. 
versus like you know he, he took took on a bit more of like a sort of dopey homer simpson-esque persona in like dk64 and i know he just in that he didn't seem as cool to me as he did back in like the original donkey kong country and for, yeah for me jungle beat brought that back yeah i i also love jungle beat a it was a good reason to get a second set of bongos and, and use my original set uh a bit more but uh yeah it was just such a a great game and as you said nothing mixing i mean even the the you know they shall not be named new play control version from memory doesn't actually even use like a like you would think you know move the wii remote and the and the nunchuck up and down like drums it's like no i think it's just like the stick and buttons so it sort of takes away the the specialness of of how the the gamecube version controlled and you know it was just such a fantastic 2d platformer oh wait no no it, it was um Donkey Kong Jet Race, wasn't yeah. it? That, like used the nunchucks. Yes. Like, they, as yeah. Fake the, the, unfortunately. It... Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I I had in my head that the that the new play control Jungle Beat did the thing as well, but you know, it must have been. Jet yeah. Race. No. I mean, well, Jet Race, which would have been on GameCube on with the bongos, but then became a much worse game. Um, as <laughs> by moving the yeah. way. Yeah. No. That that's that's my two my two biggest like pet peeves of like the Wii is stealing Jet Race. Uh, well. Uh, it was um wait it was Donkey Kong Barrel yeah. Blast yeah. originally wasn't it yeah if if we got Barrel Blast with the bongos it would have been great and if we got Super Paper Mario as the GameCube game it was meant to be then it wouldn't have had the stupid sideways remote wouldn't have the stupid pointer sections and it would have been a much better game <laughs> yeah those are my my two salty GameCube leftovers yeah um and the Kirby game that just died um <laughs> but maybe that was for the better who knows but yeah no Jungle Beat you know is such a good experience. As someone who never played country at that point in time, because I grew up with a 64, so I'd only played Donkey Kong 64 um, and knew him from Smash, it was interesting to go to a more serious uh, and a 2D Donkey Kong game. Um, but yeah, yeah, you said it was. It, it made Donkey Kong feel like a beast and super strong, like just smashing those boss Kongs at the end, just like, you know, oh, felt so phenomenal. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and like just like yeah, the like the um like the character design of I mean some of the bosses were a bit repeated, but like the the boss Kongs, they they were cool. Yeah, they were. Um, and, and they just yeah, they all had like their personalities. And it would be great to see them come back. Like I mean, like Donkey Kong has such a big cast of characters, but those Jungle Beat ones are certainly just just stuck there. Other than maybe like a sticker in Brawl or something like that. <laughs> yeah, everything has a sticker in Smash yeah. Ultimate, right? Doesn't even count. <laughs> well, Brendan, do you wanna? Talk about your number three. You mean my number two, mate? Number two. Sorry, I've lost track. Well, ho- hopefully, you know, we've done the bongos. Surely you're going to give us a, a microphone game next as the, as the final piece of weird controller stuff. Um, <laughs> like a Mario Party, oh, Odama. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, number two is Odama. No, unfortunately, never actually played Odama. Really want to, <laughs> but... I And I have a Genki microphone, but primarily through Mario Party... I think six or I think seven actually. Either six or seven. They both came with microphones and both mainly useless with microphones. But yeah. <laughs> no, my number two is actually probably a bit from left field, actually. It's Kirby's Air Ride. And oh, so it's glad one that just it's a special game for me and my close group of friends growing up. Some of them listen to this, so shout out to Mike if he's listening. He I know he sometimes listens to these episodes and gets a kick out of being mentioned albeit generally tangentially but just it's one that we kept on going back to like yes we occasionally played the multiplayer races and that's a bit of fun but 
for those who haven't played it, Kirby's Air Ride is a single button racing game. It's basically A to go forward, then you you steer. It's not really it's even simpler to play than Mario Kart. Like yes, there's some power ups and some weapons to attack other players with, but it's not really about that. It's very like it's a very calm and easy racing game. Like it's no frills. If it was just the racing game section of it, like I probably wouldn't really think about it anymore. Probably wouldn't capture our imaginations as it did. But it had a mode called City Trial, and City Trial was such a fascinating mode that basically, like, there's it was various settings you could change City Trial. But in a nutshell, you had about ten or fifteen minutes flying around this cityscape and. There were different upgrades in this cityscape, so you could upgrade your defense, your attack, your speed, your top speed, like just different stats of a racing that a normal racing game would have. There were pieces of the Dragoon and Hydra. People would know Dragoon from Smash Bros, of course, as the um, random item that appears on stage. And if you collect all three, you get the chance of an instant KO. But that's in that started in Kirby's Air Ride, and it's just a like a really fast and powerful racing machine because in city trial basically it's kind of like gta for kids in that there's different vehicles available you can jump off and get and each vehicle will have different stats and different characteristics and it's just about flying around the cityscape for 10 15 minutes and then at the end you go into this mini game challenge and it's generally whoever will win this mini game challenge generally depends on who got the best vehicle during the city trial portion who got the best upgrades or if someone lucked out and got Hydra or Dragoon like that's the person who would win and you could knock Hydra or Dragoon pieces out of opposing players so there was a lot of like jostling around for those as well it was just a really frantic and hectic mode and and there's been nothing quite like it since and it was just it wasn't something you'd expect from a racing game and not something you expect from a Kirby game and it is just pure Sakurai when you think about it when you know who Sakurai is and the type of games he makes it's like there is a progression there and like there's a lot of a lot of Kirby Air Ride like features ended up in Smash and like just from like menu design and the like but there's just a core design philosophy that Sakurai clearly has and it's imbued in all his games and that's a special one and I guess from your reaction Zach have you experienced Kirby's Air Ride as well? (laughs) Yeah, Kirby's Air Ride was a once once we got it a staple of my games. I take to people's houses to play during the GameCube era, uh, and yeah, City Trial was a hundred percent the reason we you know we dabbled with the other modes and they were fine, but City Trial was the standout by a long shot. I think you know obviously as you said it was like a fun, unique, co- uh, competitive game. You know you'd go around the city, collect power ups, try and get the best vehicle get sort of the hint to uh, what would ultimately be some mini game at the end, like a race or a, or a boss fight or a, you know, who can fly the farthest kind of thing to ultimately see who wins. But I reckon half the time we played competitively, the other half we basically played co-op, just trying to discover as many secrets. Like, you know, obviously the first secrets were those two legendary vehicles. Um, how do we get those? How do we unlock them? Um, that was super exciting. Um, but then just little weird things like, uh, random like events would take place during the mode like out of nowhere and, and some of them weren't particularly frequent so you know we'd be playing like say our 50th ever city trial match you know we think we've seen everything and then suddenly oh bam there's a meteorites coming from the sky like what <laughs> where's this coming from like it was just it felt like there was so much hidden 
in that mode. And, and, you know, in hindsight, there's probably not all that much, but at back in the day, I just felt like there was so much to discover, so many secrets. Uh, and it was just, again, so much fun to play. Yeah. We spent many hours in, um, in uh, city trial to the point where, you know, I looked at, I think it got Kirby's air ride itself, got pretty bad reviews. And I was just like, how has anyone played this? And, I'm giving it a five out of ten. I don't understand, and it becomes apparent they only played the first, you know, proper mode, the proper racing mode, which was, yeah, fair enough. That maybe is a five out of ten, but City Trial is is easily a ten. And uh, any indie devs out there that want to make their own rip off of City Trial, you should do it because <laughs> no one's done it, and I reckon it would it would sell gangbusters if you um, had an online rip off of City Trial mode. Yeah, I guess that's just one of the dangers of reviews, which we've discussed previously, in that, like, as a reviewer, you just play the single-player portion. It's back in the GameCube days, you probably don't necessarily have people you can get over to play the multiplayer game. I'm part of it while it's under embargo, and you need some ideas on how it plays, so you might just play the racing portion. You might see City Trial there, but if you're playing it on your own or with bots, it's not really going to have an impact at all, so... That's probably one of the things that held that game back in that a lot of people just saw it as a racing game, which, yes, it was a racing game, but the best parts of it really wasn't. Yeah, that, that's that's um, me right there, guilty as charged. I, I read about, oh, yeah, so it's just a single-button racing game. That doesn't sound interesting at all. I'm not going to bother even looking into this. And so, yeah, I, I, I missed out on that one, unfortunately. Also, I just love that... GTA for kids is a Kirby <laughs> yeah, game. Pretty much. <laughs> well, Sakurai does think Kirby's badass and can't be killed, so it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Although, yeah, uh, actually, no, yeah, when I did break out Kirby's Air Ride during that land that we had, I I did love that uh, firing it up and seeing the main menu of it, and you're like, oh, it's the Sakurai menu. That's where it started. Like the same menu sort of format that you see in um, yeah, was yeah, Brawl yeah. that started it. And... And Brawl and, and you see it in Kid Icarus as well and um, yep. Uprising on the 3DS. And yeah, it's just, yeah, the Sakurai stables it all goes back to Kirby's Air Ride. I mean, probably the best thing he took from it was the like checkbox sort of element, which he then put into, I think, all those games you just mentioned. Um, like, you know, effectively achievements before consoles had achievements, but you'd unlock something cool like a different colored Kirby or, you know, being able to play as King Dedede or Meta Knight, that kind of stuff oh, was yeah. just like great. Um, and gave you hints again, coming back to what I said, exploring city trial, like, okay, I need to try and do this just so I can get this achievement, like, and, and working with friends to figure out how we can get all the stuff was, was a ton of fun. So yes, if I can make one recommendation from this episode, get three friends together, get a GameCube, get Kirby's Air Ride and experience city trial. Like I'd, I'd honestly argue that it still holds up to this day. So go play it. Guess we're we're booked in for next packs whenever that happens, right? <laughs> oh, that'd be so good. Get a hotel room with the GameCube. Hey, well, we can make this happen. Uh, <laughs> we have the GameCubes. We have the power. I guess I'll go into my, my number one. And um, again, part of me wants to go something interesting, but I've got to be honest to myself. And, and number one, has to be the almost launched but not quite launched title of Super Smash Brothers Melee. I mean, for me, that's such a special game. Uh, it's probably combined with the first Smash Brothers, the thing that really got me obsessive over Nintendo because just seeing 
all these characters, uh, all the trophies, uh, all these different worlds got me to want to explore all these different games over the years uh, and learn about, you know, who is Marth, who is, you know, at the time I hadn't played a Metroid game, so who is Samus, you know, you know that kind of stuff um, really stems from, from Melee. And, you know, even ignoring the quote-unquote amazing accident that it was from a competitive standpoint, because I've never never got to that level of, of good. I can't wave dash to save myself. Um, but as a kid, just going, you know, again, playing it with friends, uh, doing, you know, figuring out how to unlock all the characters, albeit we did have the strategy guide, so it was more the, the challenge of doing it. Doing things like the event mode, uh, classic mode, adventure mode, uh, it was just so good, and and it was so early on in the GameCube's life that it really defined uh, a large portion of what that machine was for for you know myself and for many others, uh, and you know probably to this day I reckon if you know in the last ten years like if we averaged what GameCubes are doing across the globe, um, they're probably playing melee most of the time just based on uh, how active that community is uh and you know against we've now had two sakurai games featured and uh, you know he's obviously a, a madman a mad genius um uh and melee certainly is representative of both his uh, insane ability to pull off these fantastic games and in knowing it now in such a short time apparently the dev time was incredibly you know short on melee compared to you know something like a brawl or a, or a smash ultimate making it even more impressive of how good it was. So, yeah, I don't know if there's much more to say. <laughs> I guess the one thing to say on my end is, for me, it was, well, I had played 64 at some friends' places and my brother's friends' places, like, but I never owned it. I think we rented it a couple of times, so didn't really hold that mind share. But when it came to Melee, I think one of the aspects that I can't separate from Melee is how it was a gateway to other Nintendo franchises, how, yes, you I knew who Pikachu was, who Mario was, who Zelda was, but did I know who Samus or Captain Falcon or Marth and Roy were? No, but and that and Melee was the game that really convinced me to, oh, go try those games out or, or just put them on my radar. Like, yes, I didn't get into F-Zero for many years late after, but I sure did get into Fire Emblem, I got into 2D Metroid a bit. It just opened up doors, and I think... And it really opened up my interest in the history of Nintendo just through all the trophies in that game and how it detailed, like, what game it was from. And just... It really emphasised the deep history of Nintendo. And I guess at that point, that deep history only really went back about 15 years. It's not like now when we can talk about how games like the first Mario and Metroid are over 35 years old it was like it was still relatively in recent memory like not for us because well yeah older than us but like it still had that sense of a deep history and that's something that I can't separate from melee and why it sticks to mind I like for my top three list I haven't included it but like if I did a top 10 list it, it would definitely be there Guggenheimer any any smash thoughts I know I mean I did play it a lot but i mostly played it by myself against like cpus because yeah didn't sort of like m most of my friends at the time they lived like fairly far away couldn't really um we didn't really catch up that much outside of the school but yeah so most of my time was playing cpus and trying to um unlock all the trophies 
the main thing of which was that one trophy that you had to achieve like every single bonus like after match bonus in the game and there were like i don't know like a about half dozen or so that i just could not do like i, I looked up that many different guides and followed all these different instructions and just nothing that they said should work seemed to work like there was like one like there was hammer throw it was about throwing the hammer away and I know they said something about like, you know, get hit by the, like the acid on Zeebs and then at the peak of um, your launch, you can throw it away. And it just, I was like mashing that button. Nothing, nothing worked. Like, <laughs> no, okay. I give up. I, I can't do this. It's impossible. Game's bugged. <laughs> uh, it does remind me growing up when there was always those urban myths and the like of, oh, in X game, you can do this. And like at this exact moment, if you get the, the ray gun and shoot it towards the left-hand side, something will appear. And just all that asinine things that, like, some of it was actually legitimate, but the majority of it was utter, like, just... Like fi- finding the mew underneath the truck at 99 hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, exactly. I remember there were these ones that were, like, published in a magazine, like some Diddy Kong racing cheats where you get, like, deluxe versions of all the vehicles. And I think it was like press a and b at the start and diddy will fly underneath the logo instead of around and i was like, I, I i don't know how many hours i lost trying to do that <laughs> just smashing <laughs> the reset working. button yeah <laughs> yep reset try again i remember with uh smash and this is this wasn't even a rumor this was just my brain making stuff up basically i remember getting some of the Kirby trophies and I hadn't played a Kirby game at the time, but like, you know, Kirby fire and Kirby electricity. And they would, you know, be like, this is, you know, what Kirby's hat is when he like eats a fire enemy. I just assumed <laughs> that that meant I could get these hats in smash. So I would spend like <laughs> time, like as Kirby being like, okay, I'll get, you know, one player to be Bowser and breathe fire. And then I'll try and suck up the fire. And then maybe that's how I unlock fire, you know, hat Kirby in this game. Yeah, that was so dumb in hindsight, but um, as a kid, again, without trying to Google stuff or YouTube didn't exist, it just made sense. I'm like, it told me about this hat. I only know Kirby as the hat little pink dude, so of course I should be able to wear this hat in this game. Um, yeah, it makes anyway. sense. <laughs> oh, and you know, I, I spent ages trying to, um, there were like, I saw that you know, you could get particular trophies by having save, complete save games of other games on mm. your memory card. And yeah, did not know at the time that that was restricted to the NTSC versions and they were removed from PAL. So I spent all this time trying to complete uh, Mario Sunshine and there was like one blue coin in Noki Bay that I could never find. No matter what guides I followed, they always seemed to have not the complete list of blue coins. And yeah, this one one blue coin always evaded me. And so I was like massively disappointed. I could not get the Mario and Yoshi trophy, which just wasn't in the game at all in the end. <laughs> And I think there was a um, Samus without a helmet if you had, like, complete Metroid Prime save data. We didn't get that. And there was some other cheat where you could make Samus's grapple beam extend, like, twice the length of what it was, which also got patched out of the PAL version. Again, one of those things where, like, you know, at the time we had no idea that we were any different, but uh, you look back at it now, it's... Well, it's like a bit of a side tangent, but I guess we discussed it a bit earlier with homebrews and the like. It's like now we have this awareness of, oh, 60 hertz games are better than 50 mm. and like oh, all the power releases of games are 
undercooked because of that and have to seek out these the NTSC versions for some games because it's inherently better. But like, and that's the big argument for 64 games particularly. But personally, for me, it's always been well, it's what I grew up with. I'm used to the 50 hertz. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but yeah, like we didn't know any better. Like that's what we love. That's what we enjoy. Yeah, so. ignorance is bliss. I remember late GameCube, a lot of games gave you the option, and I, I just didn't know what it was. I'm like, what do you mean yeah. 50? And I just went 60 because it was the higher number, and luckily that seems to be the right decision. But I was like, do I need to check? Do I need to ask mum and dad about this TV? Is that going to explode <laughs> the TV somehow? <laughs> I don't know. It was so odd. Well, yeah, my, my main games TV didn't support 60 hertz. It was too old for that. But um, then, like, yes, yeah, so I could only play it on like the other the big tv the main one if i wanted to do that which meant you're know, having to kick everyone else off there or be told to get off when they wanted to you know it's time for the news get off <laughs> but i haven't got the save point yet <laughs> <laughs> oh i'll never i think every kid has experienced that moment of saying dad i need to get the save point or they, oh, they, no, they, 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 they come along and tell you to turn it off right when the huge cutscene starts and like, I can't stop. <laughs> Give me another, oh, wait, no, this is a really long one. Give me like 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> now. Yeah, it's like you're, you're playing Metal Gear Solid uh, Guns <laughs> of the Patriots and it's one of those like 50-minute cutscenes. It's, it's, it's the parent's sixth sense. Then they, they just know when the worst time to come along is. So Guggenheimer, number one. I think we both Zach and I know what you're going to say, but yeah, you anyway. already spoilt it. It's it is Odama, the <laughs> God, this the pinball game. Yes. <laughs> oh no, no, it's it's the the ancient history of feudal Nintendo as told through a voice-controlled action strategy pinball game. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty much what it is. It's like a real-time strategy, but with a microphone. Yeah, so yeah, you've got you've got your microphone. It's got a clip for it for the controller. So you've got it right there. And you call out your commands to your troops on the field. So you, you can direct them to like attack, to fall back, to move to the side. But at the same time, you're rolling this big, huge boulder around the field and trying not to crush them and to crush the enemy instead and progress through levels like it is you know an adventure pinball game there's levels to progress through and you follow a story and it is it's it's insane it's like you're one of those games that you're like oh this is this is a japanese game this is a very japanese game it's got a very lovely manual it's got like a nice fold out like double panel art section in the middle that's or no four panel section and yeah i never played it at the time it was something i got years down the track and then didn't play until like a few years ago and suddenly fell in love and it's smashed uh jungle beat off the number one spot and became my number one game gamecube game it's tall price as i mentioned earlier it's one i really want to try like i need to track down a copy it was cheap the thing I kick myself with is that when I first looked at it about 2013-14 getting a copy, it was like really cheap. You could import a copy from the UK for like 20 bucks, but I don't believe that is the case anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I got mine for like 50 bucks from Minotaur down on a Melbourne trip around that time as well, maybe yeah. 2010 or so. At the same time you were looking at those eBay listings, I made the correct decision of buying it, Brendan, from the UK for about that price. Um 
So, uh, yeah. And then he I, returned it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then I took it to oh, <laughs> and traded it in. Yeah, no, I, I haven't finished Odama, but yeah, I did go obviously back and play it when I, when I got the copy, again, years after the GameCube was, was dead, or not supported at least. Uh, and yeah, it's just such a fun, weird, quirky game. And yeah, again, just nothing like it at, at, as far as I know. I mean, it, it just... Each sentence you said in describing that goes from like, oh yeah, feudal Nintendo, that's kind of weird and cool. Pinball game, oh that's kind of weirder. And then with a microphone to control it, it just, it's like three to four levels of just insane. The concept, um, yeah. Well, and like the thing I ne- never realized like before I actually got it and looked. Actually, I think I don't even didn't even realize when I bought it. it was like when I went to finally open it all those years later. I looked at the box and saw down the bottom corner it was that it was uh, a game by Yute Saito, who people might remember for of Seaman fame, the weird Dreamcast mm. game where you have a like man-faced fish pet thing. But there's the best Yute Saito game, Sim Tower. Oh, that that was one of his. I, I didn't realize. Yeah. That. I th- like I think yeah I think that's the only one I know of his. I, I can't remember if I looked up other things, but yeah, once once I sort of saw that and made that connection with Seaman, like, oh, suddenly this entirely makes sense. And like, um, I, I'm kind of disappointed it didn't get like a DS or 3DS release. Mm. That could have worked. Yeah, I mean, you like, had... even 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 a sequel. Yeah, I mean, you had multiple systems with inbuilt mics that it could have worked. Oh my on. god, we could have actually had it on Wii U. <laughs> yep. Oh, oh no. Because you could even use, you could even operate it with a touch screen, couldn't you? Yeah, if you wanted to make, I mean, it wouldn't be the same as again, but you could, yeah, you'd certainly have an option for it. Or, or you could just like add in another layer of control and do other things as well. Ute, what are you doing? <laughs> Sachasan, please bless us. I think the last game he did was Aeroporter, which was one of those guild, oh yeah, guild yeah, the guild games. Yeah, uh, man needs to make a comeback. I'm hu- hungry for it now. <laughs> There's rumors of a Seaman 2, so I don't know yeah, what happened. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, I think he, he, he was like looking at bringing it to DS, I think, around like because it, yeah, it sort of fit with the whole Nintendogs thing at the time. I think it was 3DS, and I think it was almost confirmed. Like, a water has said, Yeah, we looked at it with him, and we just almost got there and then stopped. It's like an Awada's ask or something. I swear it's like officially out there that that was a prototype that just didn't come to be. But anyway. Maybe it's maybe it's swimming around in a giga leak somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> one day. Alrighty, Brendan, finish us off with your number one game game of all time. This is very tough. I keep on actually because I have a notepad next to me that I've been writing down notes and referring to notes I prepared, and I keep on changing my number one. Actually, it's changed about th- three times at this point between two games and. So I'm going to have to go with the one that's not crossed out at the moment, even though I think it's been crossed out twice now. It's <laughs> because it's between Wind Waker and one game, and I think I'm going to go with Paper Mario Thousand Year Door as my number one GameCube game. At this I, I, I was time. tossing up. Is he, is he going to say F-Zero or Paper Mario? That, that were my guesses. Well, F-Zero GX I really love, but it's a game I got like about 10 years ago, and I really haven't put that many hours into it. Like. It's fantastic, probably one of the best racing games I've played, but just, like, it'd be in my top ten, but top three, like, the ones that sort of have a special place in my heart or just special place in my gaming lexicon, like, it's not quite there yet, but Paper Mario is, because aside from Pokemon, I'd 
list Paper Mario 1000 Year Door as a game that's really got me into RPGs and JRPGs because it's really the perfect game to start for that genre because it has great writing, great localization from Nintendo America, and it's like it just plays really well. Like it's simple to pick up, but like there's a lot of depth in there to master. I've never quite finished it as I've discussed before on this podcast. Got stuck on the final boss like from two different playthroughs. Have a lot of fun memories playing it with my older sister. We tried to finish it on numerous occasions, but just fall short because I think back in the day we didn't quite understand how to optimally use the badge system, which I think is the way to succeed in that game from a gameplay mechanic point of view. But like just thinking about Paper Mario, I think there's a reason why Nintendo fans always want Paper Mario games to be like Thousand Year Door because it's just a it's a quintessential Nintendo game. It's like has that light-hearted feel to it, has really well-written characters, like great locations. Like it just has a lot of character and a lot of heart and like and it's a decent sized journey as well, just a lot of memorable moments, a lot of memorable characters, and it's just bizarre set piece moments like, well, one of your companions is a old retired bomb admiral. It's like it just there's creativity there with with the Mario franchise that they really haven't dared to do since. Yes, I know a lot of people blame Miyamoto and that sort of thing for his control over the IP and the series. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. I, I don't really know. But like, I just know that at that moment in time, they crafted a game that really still stands up. And like, I fully understand why people do want a return to form. But I think honestly, people should either just go back to Paper Mario Thousand Year Door, replay it, or hope for a remaster, because I really think that, for better or worse, that series has evolved, it's moved on, and it's not going to go back to what it was in that moment in time. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I, one thing I really loved about the GameCube era with Mario in general was they were willing to sort of expand on, this is going to sound super dumb, but expand on like the Mario kind of like universe and the lore a little bit, you know, with with their spin-offs and, and take it in directions um, that they now don't for the most part. Um, and uh, the Paper Mario games on both 64 and then Thousand Year Door are the best examples of that. And, I, you know, I'd say Thousand Year Door slightly outdoes the original on that regard. Like Rogue Town, I think that's what it was called, Rogue Port, sorry, Rogue Port, there we go, was just such a not Mario-like place for the most part, despite being filled with Goombas and Coopers and whatnot. And then, yeah, just that world, uh, even though you do hit in some of the usual tropes, like a like a foresty area and a, an island tropical area, etc., uh, it was still such an exciting and interesting world. Uh, and you just discover all these, as you said, more fleshed out, interesting characters, um, you know, like, a, as you said, an old seafaring um, Bob Almora, a weird ghost boob lady that blows wind uh, who I don't know what, you know, her deal is or, or the other, um, you know, the three sisters uh, and then one of them joins either like sort of shadow, other ghosty type lady. For some reason, a couple of ghosts in this one was just, you know, super cool. And each of them had, you know, interesting little stories uh, and just were fun to, you know, see come to life and, and uh, learn about them and journey with them, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's such a good RPG, uh, and I love the, you know, I don't know what the quite term is, but the 
like the timing mechanics to the fights where you know you can block Action or get commands. extra damage. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the commands. There was yeah, such a. I love that about the Mario RPGs in general. Obviously, it's not a Paper Mario uh, original idea, um, but it continues to be a, a strong reason for why those are some of my favorite, you know, JRPG mechanics versus just vanilla turn-based combat. Um, yeah, what, what else have they come Because I know for me, I was going to say that was like the sort of biggest draw for me because, I mean, yeah, you guys know me. I'm not the biggest RPG fan at all. And yeah, the action commands were what made Paper Mario stand out from the others for me. Because I think, I think just, yeah, just around the same time that the first Paper Mario came out uh, was when Golden Sun came out. And that was, so where I started and like that was, Golden Sun was really cool. But then once Paper Mario came along, it had like not just its turn-based system, but this sort of had this real-time element where you actually sort of had to do stuff rather than just click through a menu that just made it so much, so much more interesting for me. And then, you know, throw on top the writing and how much humor and personality they throw into everything. And yeah, with Thousand Year Door, you got like Luigi's whole side mission going on in parallel to yours that you get to read about. And yeah, it was just, yeah, a game brimming with like personality and plus that cool paper art style with everything folding around you. It's just, yeah, masterpiece. Yeah, and I think that's really what makes it special in that, that gameplay style for RPG, it does add the extra element of engagement and interactivity that is precisely what you mentioned. A lot of people, I guess, fall out of RPGs or JRPGs particularly because for a lot of the turn-based older ones, it does have that element of, oh, you're flicking through menus, you're cycling attacks. It's very it's very pen and paper RPG in many ways. That's why I think for the most part, a lot of those games have started the drift towards action RPGs, which personally i'm not a huge fan of like there's some i really like but for the most part i I do like that turn-based mechanic but i think for paper mario it really elevates it with adding those button prompts with adding that like you just don't sit back and it feels like you're involved in every encounter it feels like you have to pay attention it's not like oh it's not like some rpgs where you're grinding and you just oh keep on pressing a and you complete a battle and you move on to the next one there's even for the easy encounters in Thousand Year Door, like it, there's some joy to be had with the combat. And like for me, it, it still remains one of my top RPGs. If I had to construct a top RPG list, it's going to firmly be in there, like on the, the upper echelons of that list. Well, and plus, it's like there's just so much, so much like variety in them as well, because it's not just like, oh, you have to press A at this certain time. Like you might also have to flick a control stick this way or do like a different combination of buttons or like spin the control stick, I think was for one of them. I could mm-hmm. be thinking of like the first game here. But yeah, there was just like every move that you had to do one with had its own unique action to do with it. And then that also cha- changed with each like which whichever character you were using as your partner at the time as well. Yeah, and I think probably what really, again, just, I mean, we've gone for a long time about why it's such a good system, but what also stood out to me was it put you in situations where you had to decide, you know, do I back my skill or do I, uh, or do I not, you know, like, do I, can I tap a 10 times in a row to get the jumps off to do the damage to kill this guy? Or should I heal and hope that, you know, is that the right choice to do now versus, you know, say a Pokemon where it's like, uh, I put my faith in the in the you know RNG gods. They'll get a critical hit. Um, or do I use my potion? Yeah, I think that's just a really cool tension and mechanic to 
to think about and encourages you to get really good at those various, I guess you could call them almost mini game style prompts to um, get through the game. Well, and, and plus it, it didn't sort of have the same sort of, um, I don't know, would you call it scope creep where like your, your moves just become like massively outpowered over like older enemies. Like e- even at your peak, you're going from like doing what, like I think two damage with a jump up to maybe like six or something. Like so, yes, like I think you're right. Like yeah, it's it's like th- things are still sort of within a sort of relatively close scale, that like like you don't become instantly overpowerful, uh, overpowering of like sort of earlier enemies. It's not a numbers RPG like your sort of Disgaea games where you're getting ridiculous, ludicrous numbers piling up. It it's in the realm of normalcy. Well, I won't say normalcy because it's a RPG, but. Like, exactly for what you say, like, it feels like those early encounters are as much of a threat as later encounters. And yes, you probably can go back to early encounters and easily prevail, but it doesn't feel over ridiculous. It oh, yeah. Feel- there, there, there was a badge that lets you just, like, walk into them. And if they're that weak, that you'll just, like, destroy them without going into the battle. Yes. But there, but there, there'll still be some, like, you know, reasonably powerful ones around that can still knock you on your butt. <laughs> Well, exactly, and I think that's another important, like, finally, before we wrap, or while we wrap up on Thousand Year Door, I think that really is an important aspect of the game as well, just the customability afforded by those badges, that there's all different manner of things that you were able to do with those badges, you could really customise your experience, and, like, there's an insane amount of optimization there that, honestly, when I first played the game, I didn't really realise was there, but, like, I really want to go back sometime soon do a full playthrough, finally finish the game and really learn the mechanics because I think it, it's going to be a really worthwhile experience. Yeah, must confess I still have not finished Thousand Year Door either. <laughs> Maybe we should do a dual challenge, mate. <laughs> oh, the race is on. <laughs> if you went back, would you try and continue your old save or would you start afresh? Oh, I'd start fresh. I'd want to experience it like from the start to finish, I think, because... Yeah. It's a valuable experience. Well, it's a, just a memorable experience, and I think it'd be, there's a lot of it I've forgotten, so I'd love to relive it. Yeah, true, yeah, by now. Definitely forgotten the start of it. And also, I think my save file is probably sort of at a point where you hard lock near the final boss, so it might be a bit of a grind to finish it. I know, for, for me, it's always just the RPG thing of like, oh, wait, what was I up to? Where was I supposed to go next? Who had I talked to? Who had I not talked to? What did I have to find? No, too hard. Better off starting afresh. You can only do it if you either really remember where you're at or use a walkthrough. Like, I, I've yeah. done it with a, another RPG, and it's just I was using a walkthrough when I first started playing it, and then I went back about five years later, and I v- vaguely remembered, oh, I was at this part of the walkthrough, so I continued on. Literal bookmark. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so before we close things off, it's 20 years on since the GameCube, well, close enough anyway, as we discussed at the start. I guess... What does the GameCube mean to you guys? When you think of GameCube, what pops to mind? Like, why is it memorable? Why do you still recall it fondly? Zach, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, on one of um, the discords you and I are in, Brendan, we, we had this chat about how it's really weird how back in the day, the GameCube was the clear third place. At that time, I didn't know there was a fourth place because I didn't know the Dreamcast existed. Um, but like, <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah. Um, so despite knowing the fact that I had friends with GameCubes, it was clear that that PS2 and the Xbox were dominant. Um, but these days, there's so much love for the GameCube that I see through just the people I meet and you know talk to. Uh, and I think a lot of it 
has to do with its kind of like little lunchbox that could, you know, it was, it was sort of a defining moment for me in sort of sticking to my, my guns and <laughs> playing the games I enjoyed, which were some of these quote unquote more colorful, you know, at the time, uh, bullies would say ch- uh, kitty games, but they were just so fun, so creative, uh, and it was a really just interesting time to see developers, both Nintendo and otherwise, take those next steps into to 3D gaming uh, after the 64. You know, in some ways, you know, it felt a bit like what I imagined, because I wasn't alive, but what the NES to the SNES should have, you know, would have felt like a bit, that refinement, that, you know, taking everything just to that next level. But also in some weird ways, you know, we didn't talk about it in detail, but like things like Sunshine and Wind Waker were not the obvious next steps for those series coming off the 64. And that was both scary and exciting. And I think that's what made those times so uh, fun and that machine such a fun one to, to play because you just didn't know exactly, you know, you knew you were going to get your favorite franchises back in some form, but perhaps not the way you expected them. Like even things like Star Fox with Star Fox Adventure was such a, well, what is this? Like kind of thing. It was, yeah, I don't know. So I think that that A, sort of that sort of underdog feeling at, at the time, and then B, just such the weird, unique uh, versions of some of uh, my favorite franchises and just ones that have, you know, come and gone on the GameCube. It was... Um, really what make it stand out for, for me at, at the very least. Guggenheimer, how do you sum up GameCube? Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it is about, like, just the games of that era, but I think something, or just in general, that era always sort of stood out to me as, like, sort of the pinnacle of, like, weird peripherals and just ex- all these sort of unique and experimental different things. Like, yeah, we talked about the um, GBA compatibility and... Yeah, the well, microphones were expanded on later with the uh, DS and what it did. But then um, the e-reader and all sorts of things like that. And yeah, I don't know, just something about that time was just different. And like, yeah, looking, looking through some of the other games we didn't touch on, like there's things like um, what, Beautiful Joe and Killer7 and... Battalion Wars and Geist that all did sort of different things that I sort of hadn't seen before at the time and just really like, yeah, caught my imagination in a way that things hadn't before. Like, yeah, I I don't know. It just seemed to sort of expand so much on what we got with the 64 into like new places that... I definitely echo that because I think for so long, Nintendo really had that evolutionary feel to the games. I think for better or worse, it's not really there anymore. But when you think about what Super Nintendo, the 64, of course, it's the 2D to 3D, so there's a jump. But 64 to GameCube felt like that evolution. Like, yes, it was still 3D, but it really felt like they finally understood how 3D development worked. You had all those different innovations going on, like with the microphones and bongos and what have you. You had just gameplay mechanic innovations that, people hadn't really thought about implementing before and they did and they really worked and you just had new ideas cobbled together with old ideas just really worked well like as we mentioned thousand year door was evolution of paper mario 64 and you just had these new ideas pop up that the technology allowed them to 
it allowed them to actually see their vision. And then jumping to the Wii again, you had a new input control method. So you had evolution in that direction. And yes, it wasn't really evolution from a graphical hardware point of view, but it was evolution nonetheless. But it really breached the height of that move when they went to Wii U and they tried to innovate with that second screen, which I guess you can argue was a culmination of the GBA compatibility with the GameCube. It's a second screen with for games like Crystal Chronicles and Four Swords Adventure, which we discussed at length. And it just oh, didn't and really I can't take believe off. we did not discuss Pac-Man Versus. Oh, yeah. yes. That was on my list as well. But, <laughs> like, there's just so many games we didn't... Like, we yeah. didn't really even get into Wind Waker. We didn't... Yeah. Like, we touched on Sunshine. We didn't really talk about Metroid Prime. Well, actually, well, that, that was the other thing with GameCube. I... Like, I know well, a few years sort of after it had died off, like, I was, like, sitting there, like, you know, holy crap, I've got, like, 30 games. For this. I've never had this many games for one system before. And, like, it's, even now, I mean, well, there was still, you know, way more on the Wii and the DS. But still, it's, like, one of my, like, heaviest collections. That there was just so many different games to get. And, like, looking through the list, it was amazing, like, how many games also had sequels on the system. Mm-hmm. Like, we got Pikmin. We got one, Pikmin 1 and 2. We got Metroid Prime 1 and 2. We got... Two Zeldas. We got Wind Waker and Twilight Princess. We got Beautiful Joe one and two. We got um, Super Monkey Ball one and two. Burnout one and two. Uh, Time Splitters. We got two and three. And yeah, there's just so so much packed into this one system for like yeah, it was it was a short like what five years was it around or yeah. well, no four years for us 2002 to 2006 yeah wow felt long though <laughs> there's no time at all yeah it, it felt like a lifetime back yeah. then but. Like, when you compare it to Generations now, we're well in the fourth year of the Switch and it probably has another at least two years left in it, if you think about it. Mm. Yeah, then, like, the, the Switch Super Pro will, like, extend that another few years, right? <laughs> My OLED that's coming on Friday <laughs> will give it a lot of lifespan. But I guess, just for me, when I think about it, it's those moments of GameCube, just playing it with friends, like, afternoons on end after school, like, just discovering multiplayer experiences like Kirby Air Ride. I didn't touch on it at all, but another one we played to death because we didn't have an Xbox and didn't have Halo was Star Fox Assault because that was probably yeah, the closest same. thing you could yeah. get to Halo on the GameCube. And I'm glad you said because when, when I finally played Star Fox Assault and like played its multiplayer, like, wait, why is everyone talking about Metroid Prime as a Halo competitor? This this is this is the Halo competitor right here. This like If they expanded on that, it could have been so good. Oh, exactly. Like, it had all the... It was actually a lot of fun. It had all the tools. Like, I wish it controlled a bit better, but, like, it's good at its heart, and it just has a lot of crazy, wacky things you can do, like get into R-wings and, like, crash them into terrain, and there's a lot to explore in a lot of those open levels, and, like, just use a sniper rifle to headshot your opponents. And there's unlocks as well. While you stand on your R-wings wing instead outside of the cockpit. Yes, exactly. Get someone to drive the R wing, and you're on the wing, and you're shoot using like one of the overpowered weapons. It, like, it's just moments like that that like they just typi- typified the GameCube for me. It, it was really like, yes, there's a lot of those strong single play experiences. I probably didn't really get into a lot of them as much as I would have liked to during the GameCube's lifetime. I'm slowly going back and experiencing a lot of the, like, not a lot because there's not many of them, but the few RPGs on the system like. Satan Kytos, like Fire Emblem, which I returned but got back again. And like, there's just so many experiences like that on the system. But I always go, like, my memory 
will always be about the multiplayer and like that that's the system for me it's about having a good time with your friends and with all these weird and wacky experiences that there was just so many different things you could do like if you felt like it you'd play double dash if you wanted a fighting game you'd play melee and then there's also other ones like soul caliber 2 and the like that a lot of people loved like it, it's did you guys play Bloody Roar at all? Yeah, I played. That, that was Bloody that was Roar a was huge great. favorite with my friend group. Played so much of that, and and mo- Monkey Ball. Yes. Yeah, I played Monkey Ball multiplayer. Monkey Target for days. What, what about um Agent Under Fire? Did you play multiplayer? Yes, because that that's what I Spider Man oh, with rocket launchers, Nightfire and Agent Under Fire. Like those, if if we were going to get into hidden gems, which this episode's probably gone longer than any <laughs> other episode we've ever recorded of blowing cartridges. Hey, it's it's an anniversary, right? You've earned it. Exactly, the anniversary of our, one of my favorite systems. So Nightfire multiplayer never click, quite clicked with me. Like I liked the sort of more freeform, like gadget use and stuff in Agent Under Fire more issue with me is because i own two, the both of the games and we kind of switch between them they always merge into one oh, yeah so it's Match very hard yep. for me to <laughs> separate them like i can easily separate like rogue agent because it was kind of not great and like everything or nothing i only had on ps2 so and it was a third person shooter same with from russia with love but like agent under fire and Nightfire, i think there's only like a year apart from them as well so they they kind of merge into one game for me personally in Nightfire's defense, it did have it, odd job did have his hat, and you had those remote, remote remote controlled tanks and helicopters. Agent Under Fire has the snow multiplayer level, right, with the cable cards. Well, I think that they might go be Nightfire. back and forth. Oh, is that Nightfire? I think that's Nightfire. Because I I always enjoyed that one. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a cool one. Sneaky snipes out of the cable cars. You sort of touched on it before, Brendan, but I mean the GameCube really is a legacy in the way it impacted Nintendo in the future, right? Like, it's stuff we only learn about after, like the fact that the Wii controller was a GameCube peripheral originally. The fact that they had, <laughs> you know, 3D Luigi's Mansion uh, working, and I mean 3D, like, you know, stereoscopic 3D, which went to become the 3DS. I mean, it was the harbinger of ideas that would shape Nintendo's, you know, next 10 or so years in in all the way up to probably the end of the Wii U. And you could argue, you know, the Wii U to the Switch, it's all just kind of like this evolution from ideas that largely came from those that GameCube era. So I think that speaks for itself, I suppose. <laughs> sure does. If you never experienced the GameCube, well, the three of us collectively pity you. You had a terrible childhood. <laughs> <laughs> Deprived. All right. Well, as always, thanks for listening to Blowing Cartridges, a fantastic gaming podcast. If you like this episode of Blowing Cartridges, tell your friends. Convince them to listen to Blowing Cartridges. Convince them to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. If you haven't yourself done so, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It does a great job at increasing the visibility of our podcast. Uh, share it on your social medias. Tell your neighbours. Tell your best friend. Tell your worst enemy. We don't really care who listens to this podcast as long as people download the podcast. Tell your dog, tell your cat, tell your oh, fish. Oh, yes, the Animal Kingdom. Like, we're very popular with the Animal Kingdom. Uh, we lost the grey nomad demographic last episode due to Zach's hurtful comments, but <laughs> we'll get them back one day. Hey, I'm still here, here aren't I? <laughs> you can check us out on Facebook. You can email us at blowingcartridge at gmail.com. You can contact me at Tamazoid on Twitter. You can contact Zach at Eggerino on Twitter. If you want people to find you, Guggenheimer, where can people follow you or find out 
about what you do. They can't. And that's fair enough. <laughs> You'll remain a special guest that we'll bring out occasionally when we want to talk about GameCube, weird peripherals, and all the fun stuff about Nintendo. Back into the attic, I go. Exactly. You'll return one day when we need you, maybe yeah. for a commemorative episode again. The next 20 years. <laughs> or if we ever want to talk about the Virtual Boy. Oh, yeah. I'm, on, I'm there. <laughs> Actually, yep, put that in the calendar, Zach. We'll be doing Virtual Boys sometime in the future. 30th anniversary or something at some point. I'm sure 25th. I don't know whatever's next for, for that one. <laughs> um, I think we just passed the 25th. Yes, yeah, so Oh, no. Next year. Next. Was was Virtual Boy 97? No. Oh. Surely it was before 64. It must be. I thought it was after. It was a weird crossover period, I think. Yeah, I think it was like just before the 64 and like they didn't want to sort of cannibalize the 64's launch with some of the titles so they sort of held back on it because the whole 3d thing oh well that's a, another topic for yeah. another day uh <laughs> tune in to that future episode to find out <laughs> exactly this is a spoiler come back again one day for the super special virtual boy episode in 3d Blowing cartridges takes no responsibility for the damage to your eyes.